the place. One of us.net. The date. June 28th. The time. All of it. Wait, what? That's right, on June 28th, starting at 12 noon, we'll be broadcasting for 12 hours. It's our first ever one of us.net Comic Con Potathon fundraiser! 12 hours? We didn't agree to. There will be special guests, prizes, and several of your favorite site personalities pushed to the edges of their sanity when geek inebriation meets sleep deprivation. Funds received will go towards a one of us meetup during Comic Con as well as an end of summer bash in celebration of our one year anniversary. I'm glad you've come around. Well, what the hell else am I going to do all day? That's the spirit. Join us, won't you? Hey, Richard. What? Um, you know how normally we just contact the other alternate universe? Look, I'm busy. Can we do this later? I mean, they never turn up for like another hour yet. We've got plenty of time. I have, I have stuff to do. I've, I barely had a shower today. I'm just not in the mood to do deal with anything yeah, on the regular... They're not, they're not answering the call. So... What? what, what you... No, we did this last week. We went through this last week. We are the parallel universe. Yeah. We are the alternates. We do the mid-bit. We fill in. Yeah. We don't do the entire show. I am outraged. Mm-hmm. I am going to send a letter to my representative right now. This is... what? What's that? Oh, this? This is just a beer? Well, beer? Can I have one? Well, it's really only here for people doing an entire episode of Digital Noise. An, an entire episode? Yeah, I got like a whole case here. Ooh. I, I can have beer? Beer. And welcome to Digital Noise. Hey, oh. <laughs> hey, it's really great to be here. It is. <laughs> I, I just flew in from the alternate universe, and I'm still in the alternate universe, but still, my arms are tired because what? I'm out of shape. <laughs> Hi, Chris. Hi, Richard. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Excellent. We're really happy to be here again. We've got a bunch of good titles to talk about. Uh, you heard our promo there about the upcoming June 28th Podathon before the show started. But also, I want to remind you guys that now is a great time to be a subscriber to the site. We've got. It's always a great time to be a subscriber to the site. You're right. Not there just right this site. This yeah. second, and now this second, and now this second. All seconds. All the seconds. <laughs> And all the seconds preceding and following it. We would love to get you guys to join us. We've got lots of great stuff coming for bonuses for people who choose to do one of these tiers, including if you go to our forums, there are specialized areas in there. I don't know why I'm gesticulating. Nobody can see that. (laughs) You've got a great body for radio. Uh, Right? Um, That's that's what my girlfriend said. Damn it. All sorts of bonus features in there. Soon there's going to be a bunch of bloopers that we've recorded along the way and mistakes that we've made. all just one long blooper? And secret conversations I recorded when people didn't realize the mic was on. A.K.A. the blackmail files. Exactly. They're going to be there for you guys to see. No blackmail required. Uh, All sorts of really good stuff. Freak, uh... You get to help help us pick the commentaries, specialized commentaries to movies only for higher level subscribers, T-shirts, stickers, glasses, all sorts of cool stuff. So definitely take a look at our subscribe page, uh, pick a tier and join the us. You know, I realized when I was doing uh, the World of Us cat 
us cast podcast, I uh-huh. couldn't say join the us because it sounds like if people were reading this in Tokyo or whatever, it sounds like join the US. Like, <laughs> oh, shit, we're going to have to come up with something different here because that's not what I meant. Or is it? <laughs> you know, it's, it's the, it's the expansion and, you know, it's the manifest destiny of, of one of us. Could be worse because, you know, now that we, we got to British podcasters other than myself joining it, they could be join the uck. <laughs> Join the Uck <laughs> World of Uckcraft. <laughs> um, also, of course, you'll see links on the actual page for this with pictures of the titles we're talking about this week with time codes underneath them, so you can go directly to those titles if you just want to hear those being reviewed. And if you're interested in buying one of those titles, we'd really, really appreciate it if you'd click on those links, which will take you to an Amazon page, which if you buy from there, will indeed give us a little kickback. But that's not all. If you go to Amazon through one of our links and you just go, you know what? I don't want to buy that Blu-ray after all. I'm going to look around for a while. As long as you stay on Amazon after that on that page and you buy something, we get a kickback from whatever it is you buy. Huzzah! It's like some sort of like secret mind trick on Amazon. We oh, magic. I don't know what it is, but magic. I like it. <laughs> it's magic. We're going, going with magic. magic. Sure. The alternate universe has magic. Mm. Science is magic here. Magical economics. <laughs> uh, magic Elena Rasputin. Um, I don't know. I think my bank account is magic because every time I often look at it and go, poof, there it goes. Yeah. Aww. Well, yeah, I know. That's because you have a shared account with your wife. No, 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 no. <laughs> She's the one who makes real money. Oh, that's true. Okay, fair enough. Well, uh, so I was wondering why you didn't have any pants on. Anyway. No, that's that's all you, baby. <laughs> uh, so, you know what? Looper. It's time to open up the letterbox. And now here's the part where I play the little sound bite. You've got mail. Okay, our first question this week comes from Zach Chapman, who says, With the recent news of Darren Aronofsky developing Margaret Atwood's uh, Mad Adam book trilogy for an HBO series, I actually don't know anything about that. Um, I was wondering if there are any book series you would like to see get an HBO treatment. Any book series you fear they couldn't get right? I would love HBO to take the uh, the true detective style approach of non-related seasons and adapt Ian Banks's culture novels, which for my money are the best space opera series out there. If you've never read them, uh, the idea is it's mostly a, a, what happens if the if the, Feder- the Star Trek Federation was real. That you get to a point where you can go anywhere in the universe. You can be pretty much immortal. You can have any form of surgery. You can live 20 years as a panther if you want. Awesome. You're a total post-scarcity culture. Well, what happens... Why wouldn't every other civilization want to be like you? And the idea is that the culture has these agents who gently prod other civilizations into... Uh, going the right way to eventually join the culture. So it's like the prime redirective. Yes, very much so. It's kind of like, and they're brilliant, they're heavily political, they question the nature of, of existence, of free will, of what it is that you want after you don't need anything anymore. Mm. Uh, they are brilliantly written. And I, Banksy, for my money, is, is one of the two best writers in the, in the English language at the moment. The other one is Terry Pratchett. Um and I think doing those as independent freestanding series would work so well because they, they kind of mesh into a big uber narrative, but very lightly. Hmm. Um, Didn't Banks die recently? Yeah. 
He did, okay. Yeah, and I was... Yeah, huge... Cutted. Uh, huge amount of books that guy Oh, he was all different genres prolific. and... Yeah. In fact, his publishers, because he did these science fiction ones, and his publishers said, well, science fiction will ruin your brand as Ian Banks' reputable novelist, and you have to come up with a pseudonym. And he went, okay, I'll be Ian M. Banks, and just oh, put that, my middle initial in there. Is that where that came That's from? That's how you can tell the difference. I did not... Okay, I was not clear if they were absolutely the same person when yeah. I would be oh, at yeah. the bookstore. Well, and the funny thing is that some of his quote-unquote conventional novels are actually science fiction novels, but they're arty science fiction novels rather than space opera, right. so they aren't Ian M. Banks. So it gets very confusing. That but is yeah, a little his stuff confusing. would be phenomenal. What about you for a... Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, there's an endless amount of series I would like to see adapted, but it was very specific about HBO. And HBO tends to do stuff when they're doing... You know, I mean, I can't think of anything like a flat-out comedy, like Veep or something I would like them to do. But uh, I always think of their dramatic series, really. And a lot of the series that, that first come to mind to me are more, I don't know, silly-ish. Like, I, you know, Chronicles of Amber by Roger Zelazny is a series I think would make a great and endless running television series. But I don't think it's really HBO's thing. Yeah. Not really HBO. Uh, the same thing uh, goes for The Dresden Files, which they made an abhorrent television series out of briefly on, I can't remember what. Yeah, uh, sci-fi. Was it sci-fi? It yeah. was sci-fi. Well, you know, there you go. And you're like, okay, if somebody seriously would take this but know how to have fun with it too, that could be wonderful. But that's not HBO either. For some reason in my head, I immediately went to uh, Trevanian, uh, who did a book called Shibumi and several books that followed of this guy who's sort of like, he's like half white, half Asian, and he's like been trained in like every kind of martial arts although sort of ninja-ish specialties are his and he's basically just sort of like the guy you, you that like a top level corporate people would hire to do the jobs they don't want to admit need doing job done and then he gets caught up in a sort of like oh we now we need to cover this cover this up including the guy who did the job type mm-hmm. things and it's a whole really fun series of books by an author that did a bunch of trashy stuff and this was like the best stuff he did mm. uh, and I feel like a character like that there's a lot of shows like that like I'm watching Ray Donovan right now as a very sort of character like that except without all the I'm a ninja stuff uh, <laughs> might <laughs> improve it <laughs> right um, and I don't know it, it might be fun to see something like that on HBO I, I, for a series I, uh, that I hope they don't touch uh, another British author, Terry Pratchett. I love Pratchett's books beyond measure. Have he, you watched any of the, the adaptations? Yeah, I'm very mixed on them. Yeah, me too. I'm very, very mixed on them. And I, I want to like could, them more than I actually like them. I think the problem is they're trying to be too funny. And Pratchett, the funny should just come out, but I really feel that these are, they're kind of, you know, they're in on the joke and they nod a little bit too much. And I, yeah. I, I'd like them to be a, bit, a little bit more subtle. They wink I, at the audience entirely too much. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to see you know the Guard series adapted because they're they're great, funny, again, heavily political but very satirical books. Uh, I I think if done right, they could be fantastic. But I don't want to see HBO uh, butcher all the uh, the obviously British accents. I think that would just be horrific, and I don't want to see them do that. <laughs> so I love you, HBO, but no, It'll no. Be- you know, it would be, and they wouldn't do this now because they've already got a huge budgeted fantasy series. But if you've ever read the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant and the Unbeliever by Stephen R. Donaldson, oh yeah, well they'd have to leave out the first bit. Well, no, that's just it. They can't. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's the whole premise of the book. Is the guy's like he's a leper and he's falling apart and his life is miserable and his wife has left him and taken the kids and everybody hates him and throws things at him and then he gets hit by a car and wakes up in a fantasy kingdom uh, where he is nursed to health briefly by this beautiful like maiden and he assumes he's having a dream so he rapes her yeah only then he finds out that 
he if it's a dream, he can't get out of it. And fortunately, in that world, because he's missing some fingers and he has a wedding band full of white gold, which is totally all but non-existent in that world, they assume he's the reincarnation of this famous hero that's come to save the world from the encroaching evil. And so even though people are like, you know what, I'm never going to like you because you raped my daughter and, or my sister or that t- or that chick, I, I begrudgingly am going to still like stand by you because... You know, you're, you're gonna save the world. And he's like, this is bullshit. <laughs> it's like, this whole world is bullshit. I just want to get out of this coma or whatever it is. And it's actually a really good series about like, you know, redemption and forgiveness and all this sort of things. It's really great. And it, I think that he did a second, well, he did do a second series, but I think he did a third series years later that I hear is not so great. But the first two series are wonderful. They're kind of the anti, you know, slave women of gore books because you know <laughs> they they are equally morally repugnant but then there's no well that was wrong yeah. uh hbo really shouldn't do those yeah no, stay clear no, of the gore no, books no 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 absolutely <laughs> uh, but that's the thing about this like hbo loves complex moral like stories and this is a complex moral story but set in a sword and sorcery world yep so anyway let's move on to our next question which is by jamie mizale mizale that's a name that's a- I, I, I like it. Yeah. Uh, Fuentes, who says, is there any film that highly influenced your taste in music? Ooh. Yes. Uh, lots. Um, okay, we answered that question. Yeah. <laughs> no, just I think, I think the, uh, I, I would, one that I always have to uh, say is um, Raikuda's soundtrack for Last Man Standing, uh, a film I love and we'll always talk about. But he does this in- incredible. Walter Hill's Last Man Standing. Walter Hill's Last yeah, Man Standing. Very the good. Soundtrack is very good film. Kuda throws out his blues interests and turns it, and it has this kind of weird, overdriven effect that almost makes the guitar sound like a bassoon. And after hearing that, I was like, "How does he do that?" And that pushed me a lot more into some interesting experimental music. I think uh, um, going back a little bit further, I think, uh, and not a film, but TV. Um, Mission Impossible, the uh, the soundtrack by Lalo Schifrin, huh. who I I love. I mean, that, that kind of helped get me uh, interested in kind of Latin rhythms, which I'd never had any interest before that. But you hear that and like, isn't his son involved in film now? Yeah, his son is. In fact, his son had a short at Fantastic Fest a few years ago. He was lovely. Yeah, it was really nice. The, the entire family is apparently just delightful. Um, um, but yeah, it, and you know, whenever I hear you know Jim Thurwell of of uh, Fetus and uh, Fetus Interrupters and Stereo Maximus, his a lot of his stuff now is very heavily post Lalo Schifrin, and you know, you can, so you can feel like even people like myself and Jim Thurwell who are like industrial and metal at heart. Lalo Schifrin just changes your worldview. So I, I will, I'll, I'll go. With, I'll go with anything that Lalo Schifrin had his hands near. Is just like that is cool and reshapes how you appreciate. Didn't music. you say that he had a the best the title best ever? Title for a for a best of album ever. Ladies and gentlemen, go out today and buy. There's a whole Lalo Schifrin going on. That's so awesome. That, that's unbeatable. <laughs> uh, and for me, you know, I mean, I've there's I like most genres of music. 
Uh, there's always something that I really like from it. For the longest time, my big standout was uh, country, and now there's a lot of country I really like. You know, and Johnny Johnny Cash is what changed that for me. I was well, like, yeah. "Who the fuck is this guy? He's <laughs> awesome, <laughs> man in black. That sounds like a punk rocker. I better check this out." Um, but you know, when I was a kid growing up, of course, I was you know, I mean, you watch kids' movies, and I really fell in love with musicals for a while. I even did musical theater for a long time. Loved all that stuff. Uh, man of La Mancha, still my all-time favorite. <laughs> Oma. Uh, what? Oh. Are you doing Oklahoma? Oklahoma. Where the wind goes sailing across the plains? I, I think or we're heading like very close into too much copyright material. <laughs> um, but, you know, as I got older, I think the first real, I mean, outside of the, you know, the early rock you listen to, I mean, like my older brothers and sisters showed me Help by the Beatles, and I was like, fell in love with the Beatles for a while. But I actually got into punk before I kind of got into classic rock and stuff. I was really into oh, so cool. a whole bunch of stuff. And one of the movies that did that for me is when I got shown Repo Man, where I was like, oh my God, this is, this is, cr- I don't even know what to make of this film. And I went and tracked down like pretty much everybody on that soundtrack, which of course, you know, led me to go to my local record store. Where there was the cool clerk with the long hair it was like, I was like, I like this record. What else would I like to listen to? And from there, he kind of took me down a trail like, here's the Dead Kennedys. Here are the Cramps. You know, here's uh, uh, Mission of Burma. Here's, you know, all this stuff that you should really check out. These essential albums. Here's Wire. Uh, and that was probably the most formative single album I ever got of like that led me down this path. And later, Return of the Living Dead, which was sort of ah, like yes. the, the best ever movie soundtrack follow up to Repo Man for like all these essential punk things that will lead you down the proper paths. <laughs> but down the path of darkness. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. And then I hate to say it. Um, uh, what was the Led Zeppelin movie? Song remains the same. Yeah, terrible movie, but we used to take a lot of drugs, and um, watching that movie totally made me the world's biggest Led Zeppelin fan. Such a car crash. Such a car Absolute crash. Absolute car crash of a film, but when you're on lots of LSD, it was a completely different experience. Well, aren't most things? <laughs> well, that is Isn't true. Isn't that the point? <laughs> that is true. There we go. But, you know, I mean, the good thing you can say about it is it did indeed turn me into a Zeppelin fan, which to this day I go, that was a worthwhile pursuit. No. Nah. <laughs> As long as you, as long as you cut off before, before, you know, before Coda. Pres- oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> Presence, Coda, and any of the solo albums, you're, then you're good. See, well, any of the solo albums, certainly, but, uh, you know, like even Presence and Into the Outdoor and, and, uh, what's the other, uh, double album one, uh, around then? I always forget the names of them. But, uh, all those have three or four good songs on them and the rest are just kind of filler. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but one, two, three, four, uh, Houses of the Holy are like, whole thing take it inject it into your veins be it it's like sabbath one three four just do it oh yeah well just, just i'll go I, I go with sabbath all the way with ozzy until uh right before what was it you don't need never say die or technical ecstasy no but he needs that. but all the albums before that are fantastic yes <laughs> all right and we got one more question i know we normally do too but we just had to throw this in here by dennis McElwain, who says are there any films you have seen that are have been ruined by swearing Fuck off. No, no. No, of course not. That's ridiculous. Fuck's sake. No. I've seen some movies that were improved by swearing. <laughs> Occasionally by swearing at them. <laughs> right? There are those, yeah. And those were, in fact, improved by swearing. I have to remember, I come from an area of the world where you can actually, where, where fuck is a noun, adjective, adverb. Yeah, isn't it? There's even a documentary about the word fuck, I believe. Where it's, it's the <laughs> Pronoun. Words, it's the most, like, flexible word that exists. In the English language. Yep. Yeah. And it's also one of the most universal as well. There's so many uh, different countries where, which speak different languages, and fuck, fuck is, is still the fuck. It's fuck or fuck or fuck. Yeah. 
So close as to be little or no difference. Yeah, yeah, and you you can make yourself know. I mean, maybe like if you're somebody, this is a question for somebody who finds that they twinge a little sometimes still when they hear a curse word. And obviously for you, that's going to be true. If that's the case, I am not that way. I never quite got over that part of me when I was a kid that would hear someone say a dirty word and go, hey, awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Beavis. (laughs) Moving on. Moving on. Well, it's time to close the letterbox and move on to our favorite part of the show, where we do the reviews. And we've got a bunch of titles to talk about this week, but the first one we are going to take a look at is, uh, well, the, the probably the, the, the biggest new home release for this week, which is the re-release, not re-release, I'm, I apologize, the remake of RoboCop. Certainly one of the most fanboy screamed about even when they first announced it films i can remember with just a sort of general consensus of don't do it and i'm like why poor k i I don't understand i I don't understand what what's the big deal i mean the original is a super fun super great little film with two at best mediocre sequels you know that's being nice and a kind of fun tv series follow-up which actually kind of went in it it goes down a more cyberpunky path and he develops a uh uh a virtual sidekick who uh was pretty dear dear halo fans if you like cortana go watch the series because you'll realize where she came from Oh, hmm. uh, pretty much a deadlift. Uh, <laughs> I did not know that. Sorry, Bungie, but you know we kn- we both know we both know. <laughs> well, they figured nobody saw it, so <gasps> it, it wasn't bad. It wasn't great, but it was fun. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I just I go that was very much a film that you wouldn't want to try and copy the way they did it. Yeah, you know, you're like, and it was kind of one of those almost a happy accident of a film where you're like, this shouldn't have worked. It really shouldn't have worked, but it did. Yeah. Uh, Total Recall is exactly the same way. You couldn't make that film now. Yeah. You know, you absolutely couldn't. And Total Recall remake as well was like, okay, we're going to go a different tonal path with this version of the film. I think that was the right decision for both the, both these films, to, uh, Total Recall and Robocop, both of which are still regularly being slammed by people as just being awful. And I can't agree. No. I think they're, you know, they're not like, the thing about both these are, n- these films, neither one of them are you know, oh my God, great science fiction movies. I mean, partially because they're, you know, I mean, they're remakes and they're borrowing so much from something you already know what's going to happen, what have you. You're like, okay, it can't be that great if it's not completely original anyway. Yeah. But neither one of them are that bad. I mean, the, uh, you know, for those of you who haven't seen either this or the original, basic idea, cop gets uh, gunned down, gets turned into cyborg, Question of, will is he a human or is he a robot? Does he retain his humanity? What happens to his family afterwards? Um, and there's subplots about corporate uh, corruption and where the line, you know, what happens when you privatize the police. Uh, in this updated version, it starts off in a still very heavily occupied uh, Middle East. But at this point, America has invaded Iran. And they just discover that uh, you know, people don't like the idea of having robots on these streets of America, but they're quite happy having them blow stuff up in foreign countries. Um, so there's this big... This is where this, is, this really starts to diverge from the original, because the original concentrated on Murphy, the cop, and you know the political stuff goes on around him. He's, here he's actually almost a side character in this yeah. bigger discussion about it's a political film yeah it's a, it, whereas the original was a camp movie that had some political things to say this is a political movie with sci-fi stuff going on around it yeah <laughs> I mean, it's 
you know, Joel Kinnaman as Murphy, he's okay. He doesn't have Peter Weller's weird charm. Yeah, Peter Weller has that inexplicable charm because he's so deadpan yeah. and yet hidden deep inside, but where you can't miss it is a twinkle in his eye yeah. all the time. And Kinnaman is missing that twinkle, yeah. that essential je ne sais quoi twinkle. <laughs> and, and the thing is, Weller, I think, got that, you know, the original was a spoof. Um, oh, what's his face? The director. Um, Paul Verhoeven. Verhoeven yeah. hasn't, made a, hasn't made a serious film in his entire U.S. career. He really, you know, from his time as kind of a, a lightly satirical but still pretty straight-ahead uh, art house director in uh, in Holland he, to his U.S. career, he basically lost the art house and just went... I'm kind of going to do goofy stuff. And there's going to be some politics in there, but it's not really going to be that. This is just, it's moderately lumpen, I think. In Mo- moderately what? Lumpen. It's just kind of like, there's so much that's on the nose. The, you know, the original just goes, fill in the gaps, silly stuff's happening, you know, guys melt, and you know, you yeah. get really violent I shoot did, scenes. I mean, this is just... A lot of this is, you know, I mean, you're saying it right now. A lot of it has to do going into this with expectations that this is going to be anything like the original RoboCop. Yeah. And they really wanted to make, or at least this director, uh, Jose uh, Padilla, who was uh, is uh, well-known in Brazil for the Elite Squad series, which are also, like, takes John, a genre film and makes it really a political film. Yeah. <laughs> but but I, I, those are really good. And I could see why when they ended up with this script, they, they hired him. I, I don't think... He keeps any of the grittiness that I think you needed to have with this of this kind of collapsing Detroit and bringing you know I, I think he could have, if they'd have let him off the leash a little bit more I think this would have been a much better film and I think this Agreed. the script's just too complex there's too much going on there's Samuel L Jackson turns up as a Bill O'Reilly figure who you know his speeches are. They're so on the nose yeah everything about say, this is on the nose there's the, no mystery it's, it's to the point where. Like you, like they don't have to even wink at you because it's so clearly an allegory for like this is five years from now. You know, this is this is where we are right now, and I'm yelling about how things are right now in a very very specific way. That you know, even though I agree with all his points, I'm still like, okay, tone it down a little bit because I want to actually when I see a movie still have fun. And RoboCop does finally manage to have fun in this film. I mean, eventually it turns into, okay, now we're seeing badass RoboCop blowing up bad guys and, and doing stuff. But even so you want to see, and this is, you know, once again, comparing it to the original, you want to see, you know, that ridiculous gore at points that you go, Oh, and like great one-liners and stuff to throw in there. And they forgot really to have fun with this movie. And it, and it, the first hour and a half is so staid and boring. I mean, that, that's its biggest sin. There's places where it's legitimately boring and really kind of hits you over the head and goes, you need to feel compassionate about this character. And there is... There's only really one gore sequence, um, and I won't spoil it, but it does the one thing that the original didn't do, mm. and you didn't need it to do, and you're kind of like, well, now I just feel sad. <laughs> I just really, oh, God. And I know in 10 minutes there's going to be an action sequence, and I'm going to feel a bit better, but I just, I just feel sad for the characters now, and I want to go home and cry. See, it's like, for- he shouldn't be, you know, he kind of like, oh, my body was completely destroyed, and now I'm suicidal. It's like, dude. Just bum me out, why don't you? It doesn't See, need to be whose life is it anyway for 25 I, minutes. I d- 
did enjoy this film in and of itself of what it is uh, like. And I think that if they had found a way, found a way to skin this and not make it a official RoboCop film, you know, like make it where, okay, he's not quite as cyborgy. Maybe he's just got a chip in his head or a mechanical arm. Tell that story, do it serious like this, that you would have had a, a, you know, a movie that was much better just by virtue of not being a remake of RoboCop. Ultimately, I think that, yeah, it takes too long to get where it's going. I think Joel Kinnaman, while he's a fine actor, definitely seen him be really good in some stuff, including the American version of The Killing. I think he was even, wasn't he in the foreign version, too? I think he was. Yeah, I think he's in both versions. Um, I think he's a terrific actor. He's just, he's either miscast here or they're asking him to pull it back too much. Uh, like he's, tr- it's almost like he's trying to channel Peter Weller, but he doesn't know how to do it. So it just comes off as sort of atonal and emotionless and not, in- and that's before he becomes Robocop. And also, I like then the original Robocop, uh, uh, you know, a big part of the success of that is like, we really like Alex Murphy. Like, he's a nice guy. He's a fun guy. All the cops like him. And then when he turns into Robocop, immediately he's all robot and then slowly starts to regain his humanity. And that's a fun path to go down. Here, he's a robot, but then he's still completely Alex Murphy. And it's not for quite a while in the movie and just a short period of it where they go like, you know what, let's turn the humanity off and just make him into a robot. And I'm like, okay, I just, it doesn't, that arc doesn't have the same pathos or or fun with it. You know, it this works on some levels, it really doesn't on others, but even so, it's not a terrible movie. In fact, to go back to your point about, you know, part of the problem is the expectation. If Marvel had made this as a Deathlock movie about, which is a very similar idea, in fact, Robocop kind of takes some of the stuff from it, sure. or about a you know, cyborg who is you know, designed to kill and solve problems by shooting stuff in the head, <laughs> and you just CG'd all the Robocop imagery out and put in a, you know, somebody as the classic half-metal skull Deathlock I think people would like this a lot more, and I think that's the thing. If you if you don't come up with the expectations, you'll have a lot more fun than somebody who comes in with expectations. It's still not necessarily the best film you're going to see this year. But no, no. It's going to be a not. lot better if you don't think about Paul Verhoeven's Try version. and separate it as much as possible from yeah. that film and expect something that's going to be a lot more serious. Um, this, you know, uh, it's funny because with all the ideas in this one, this should have worked. You know, whereas the original shouldn't have and did. This should have worked and didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Meh. Uh, now, if you get this, there's on Blu-ray, there is about four minutes of deleted scenes. There is a uh, three and a half minutes of Omnicorp product announcements <laughs> for all the various tech you see in this film. And by the way, some of the tech stuff in here, especially we see later on, is actually super fucking cool. Yeah. Like a lot of the, you know, like we always love the uh, guy, was it, what was the giant battle robot thing? The ED-209. ED-209. There's stuff that I thought was much better than the original ED-209 yeah. in here for tech stuff. Uh, there is a uh, series of featurettes. Uh, called RoboCop, engineered for the 21st century. You know, it just takes a look at the various aspects of it. And then, of course, the generic stuff you expect. Trailers, sneak peeks at other movies, blah, blah, blah. But, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just mixed on this one. I did like it, but it also was disappointed by it. I liked it more than I expected. Yeah. Um, which yeah. I think say, says everything. It, you know, I, there's, it, there's worse films you can spend two hours watching. At least it has the good grace to bring in an action film into like an hour 50, yeah. which I think a lot of people don't have the restraint to do. And I, I think it's proof that I'm going to give Padilla a, a, a mulligan on this because I do <laughs> like uh, the Elite Squad films. I think they're phenomenal pieces of filmmaking. And I think that, you know, somebody needs to go, you know what? We kind of forced him to do Goofy too much. Let's just let him loose with a really good, dark, 
crime drama in the States. And I think, yeah. 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 HBO, hire him. This guy's good. Yeah, he would be perfect on HBO, actually. Yeah, HBO should do a uh, Latin American or South American series and have Jose Padilla do it. Yeah. Ah. Well, isn't there HBO uh, uh, Latin channel anyway that has specific shows? I think there may be. I think there is. Ah. Well, I should know this. I'm terrible. You that should. I'm a racist or something. Bad I human. I, I tell you what. They don't offer them to me on Blu-ray and DVD, so I don't know. It's their fault. They're the racists, not me. That's... Down, down, a, down a terrible path we tread. Uh, <laughs> moving on. Uh, let's move on to another uh, near-future sci-fi film that takes itself too seriously. Parts Per Billion. Now, this was originally supposed to get a theatrical release, and after seeing it... Why? I'm like, oh, that's why they didn't theatrically release this, or at least no, nowhere near here, anyway. Uh, and it's not, once again, it's not that this is terrible... It's just a wild miscalculation on how to tell a story with pathos with sci-fi. Yeah. Pathogens, but not pathos. Ah. <laughs> she like that? See what you did there. Yeah. I, well, smart. they were complaining about no puns last week, so wah, I had to wah. throw some in. Um, the idea here is that this is interwoven both in space and time, uh, so a linear is shit. Stories of three different couples who are having to deal with a, a giant cloud of pretty much you're going to die and in a few minutes after you, you, you get infected, cloud of particles that's come to the United States, people are dying all across the world. And these three couples, we watch how beforehand and then during this going on and then after what happens to them, how it affects their relationships. One couple is Josh Hartnett and Rosario Dawson. Uh, one is Frank Langella and Gina Rollins. And one is uh, Teresa Palmer and Penn Badgley, which is, you know, just great casting. In oh, yeah. this. Alexis Bledel has a nice little part in this. You know, a really solid cast, a very, you know, very nice filmed, like the cinematography, I think, is quite beautiful in this film. But its big miscalculation is that it's a, you know, I mean, it's setting itself up as this, you know, apocalyptic film. And the only thing that feels apocalyptic are the emotional beats between the characters that yeah. are happening here. And I don't care when they've already shown us the end of the world is nigh. Yeah. You know, you have to build to that. But this movie wants to jump all over the place in time. And it just makes it, like, very distracting. Very, I mean, at best, you can focus on the strength of some of the performances here, which are indeed good. But when you're like, okay, here's five minutes from this hour. Now here's five minutes from seven hours later. Now here's five minutes from three days beforehand. You're like, is there any reason that they shook it up this way? Because I couldn't figure out one. I I think purely so they can pull a, a quite manipulative bait and switch towards the end um, that I was not that down with, but then I wasn't... Also, by that point, I wasn't that emotionally invested in it either. I don't know. It's it's very one-tone. They, they play a bit of a trick that all the characters are kind of interrelated and you have to yeah. work out how the, the plot fits together and how they are. are. Which never really is has any real impact on the plot. No. Either. It's just like, well, because. Yeah. It's not like Magnolia, where all these relationships inter interweave in a very brilliant, very plot-affecting way. This is just yeah. almost like, well, you know, I guess so that way a few scenes we can have multiple stories have the characters be on screen at the same time. And that's oh, you, you may be done with the past, but seemingly here the past is very much done with you. There's no impact. <laughs> Everything. I mean, the, the best thing about this, by far is uh, Frank Langella and uh, Gina Rowlands. Oh, yeah. This aging couple, he has a connection to the, the pathogen. Uh, and frankly, I would have watched an hour and a half of just these two old people 
who are facing death anyway because she's ill. He uh, there's a beautiful scene where he's trying to take a um, a, a, a lid off a, a jam jar, and it's one of the best tiny character beat physical character beats I've seen probably since um, oh. Peter Fonda having a glass of water in Uli's Gold, which there's that. If you have a chance, see that film. There's one. There's a. He sums up a whole character in how he drink drinks a pint of water, which is astonishing acting. And and Langella does that here. Yeah. And I mean, his he is he is one of the great elder actors yeah. we have right now. Um, I'm very sad that his career didn't stay as strong after uh, uh, Frost, uh, Frost Nixon, which yeah. I thought was an absolute masterpiece Phenomenal. and a, a, a performing and writing both from everyone involved. But yeah, here's like he's kind of slumming it, but he's rising so far above the material. Yeah. You know. I don't think he knows how to slum it. I think and I think, again, I think this was probably one of these films where it started off, uh, you know, People going well. We can, you know, this is a great plot. I'm, it either got uh, sidetracked or smacked over the head with Soderbergh's um, was it Contagion. Yeah, yeah, which has a you know, kind of dabbles in the same territory, and it's Soderbergh. I mean, how are you going to go toe to toe with that? Yeah, it's not even a, gr- a, a great Soderbergh, but it's a solid Soderbergh. And I really feel this kind of this almost feels like an Asylum version. Of that. No, you're and right. it's a lot better than it, that. If Asylum just... wasn't going for just pure trash, if they were like, "Oh, we're also doing ripoffs of arty stuff and trying to be arty while we're doing it," this yeah, this would be like that company doing yeah. it. And the thing is, they've created three really interesting couples with very interesting problems, but it's hard, like the way it's written. But then. The director did an exquisite corpse with it, cut up all the pieces, threw them in the air, and filmed the pieces where they lay. And the it never builds, it never builds the pathos. It never, you know, you're like there are parts towards the end. You're like, we should have seen this in the first ten minutes. Yeah. Why am I seeing this now? It's just I feel like everything that goes wrong with this film is really the fault of the director who chose to make it the way that he did. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, worth it. It, it. Probably you could go in and re-edit it, so just have the, Lang- the Langella and uh, Roland's bit, and you know, that would be a great little film. See, I like all the characters in here, and I like what's going on with them. I thought, especially Hartnett and Dawson, have real strong chemistry with each other, and their failing marriage, and then. Uh, uh, but they don't have time to make it go anywhere. You kind of feel yeah. that it, it, it's it, any it, of any of these could have been extended out. Would apart have been really... from maybe you know. Uh, the Palmer and Batchley plot, where they're kind of you know, fey losers. Uh, well, the thing is, wasn't really taken with them. You feel like that's the main st- story, them, because the movie tries to make you feel. But that's the one that goes the most nowhere out of any of them. Yeah, you know, you're like, well, why were they even in this then? You know that these others, they feel like they would. This would be a great smaller part of a much better film. You know that actually builds towards something. <laughs> yeah, you know whoever wrote this script, you need to get a partner who knows how to write plot because yeah. you're good at characters. <laughs> you just need to get the guy with the plot, and you work together, and don't let the director saw it up, and maybe you're going to have something. Yeah. All right. Um, sorry, parts per billion, but uh, this is a movie per billion that you will probably never see. So. Wah, wah. Wah, wah. At least not if you listen to us. Well, uh, let's move on over to to. Uh, to Dutch, Dutchland, Dutchland. <laughs> yes, Dutchland. That's what I'm going with. <laughs> what is yeah, it? HBO uh, it, uh, Latino is not your biggest issue today, really. Dutchland, Dutchland. Really, no, it's the Netherlands where. Sorry, Europe. Where uh, another film called Blackout? I think when I was looking on IMDb, there was like 70 films called Blackout. It's like Blue Movie last week. 
Yeah, right. Wait, everybody's done one. I think I made one called Blue Moon. Except there actually, there was also the category, so. Yeah, a little bit. Fair enough. But um, Blackout is a 2012 Dutch crime action comedy film. Now, looking at the cover, you know, when this just came out on DVD, I was like, okay, here's another one of those cheap, lots of CG, silly little things. And what they're making is a Dutch lock stock and two smoking barrels here. Yeah. And the sad thing about that is it's too late for anybody to do a lock, stock, and two smoking barrels film. Yeah. It's already been done to death. But that Even being... Guy Ritchie doesn't rip off Guy Ritchie anymore. Yeah, I know, uh, right? And a man whose career was basically built around ripping off Tarantino and taking out all the intellect. Right. And now you've got people who are like, I'm kind of like that. Uh, but no. This, ugh. But ugh. You, you know, the thing for me is, I, I actually, once I got over the fact that why is somebody still making films like this? I actually thought that this is one of those movies I go, if this had come out 10 years ago, we all would have gone, Oh, this is pretty good. You know, I actually really like this. It's just our own jadedness that makes us go. (laughs) And the fact that, you know, I mean, why are you copying the style so long after the fact now, you know, after it's been so overdone and none of us have a taste for it anymore. Why are you doing that? But it's not like I would call it a masterpiece or anything either. Uh, the idea here is, uh, Joss, Joss, uh, is a, used to be a criminal. He has retired from being a criminal. He's an older guy. He's getting like, he looks like he's in early fifties probably. Yeah. Uh, and he has met the woman for him after he went straight. He was working as like a maitre d' or something at a restaurant, meets this woman. They got totally serious. It's the day before his wedding and he wakes up to find a totally mutilated dead guy in the bed beside him. No, like you do. Yeah, like you do. Well, I mean, if you do it right. Um, (laughs) Yeah, what was yours like in Vegas? What? (laughs) Stays, stays there, stays there. (laughs) Um, And, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't want to get back to their life. He doesn't want to ruin his marriage. He doesn't remember anything that happened the night before. And shortly afterwards, he finds out that two different crime bosses in town feel like he has ripped off 20 kilos of cocaine from him. And he's like, I, what? I don't know any of this. And I've given him basically 24 hours to get the cocaine back to him or they're going to kill him and his wife, who knows nothing of his life or any of this. To complicate matters, his father-in-law, who's a rich lawyer or soon-to-be father-in-law, is also involved in this somehow. He ends up having a team up with his old group of buddies who he used to do pull jobs with, who may or may not be on his side. Um, there's lots of twisting loyalties in this. I mean, it really, I mean, like I said, look at Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, and you'll go like, okay, just replace parts. <laughs> you know, there's even, like, the main mobster guy is this really old, cranky guy, you know, you're like, okay, we've seen this film, we just haven't seen it in Dutch. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's so many moments where you're like, oh, I even know what you ripped off. There is a, a Mexican standoff. That where you you may as well have one of the characters shouting, "Don't point the gun at my dad!" <laughs> it really just oh, there's nothing that this adds to anything. I mean, there's some fun stuff going on, and uh, Raymond Theory as Joss is actually really quite good. It's kind of a world weary ex criminal who never who mostly got away with it. But there's nothing. There really is nothing new here. And I think if you're going to try no. and do something like this, at least bring a little bit of, of something extra. And there are some really good, fun, smart, uh, dark crime comedies coming out of that area of the world and up into Scandinavia at the moment. That's a real strength. This is like, it's so retro and kind of there's two 
mob enforcers who are kind of vaguely gothy women. It's like, oh, this is radical. No, it's not. No. No, that's actually now very predictable. There's it's nothing... like you say, did Robert Rodriguez help you write this script? <sighs> it, I mean, it, it, you, can, you can take the patchwork apart and put these pieces back into the films they came from, and you would be missing nothing. I'm, I'm not... Uh, and this got festival play as well. This, this seemed to well, like I said, people. I think if this, I, I think if this had come out like in the heyday of this stuff, everyone would have gone, "Oh yeah, this is a great contribution to what you know everybody's doing." But still, this is a, a good one in there. But it's it's just so many have been made already like this, and this is so unapologetically a you know. I mean, if they had just said, "You know what? We're doing a remake of Black Stock and Two Smoking Barrels," I would have been much more forgiving. Yeah. Than them saying, "No, this is something different," because because it's not. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's technically a superior en- uh, entrance into the rip-off guy Richie mold. It's very well made. There's some fun character beats, but it's really, you know, this you probably got 50 films like this already, uh, yeah. and there's probably 200 like this on on Netflix. I mean, so I'm there not was, really there was sure. 50 films that came out the year Lock, Stock, and Two. Oh, uh, and I I out. saw and reviewed like two days all in of the them. valley. And I, I saw so many of those films. Yeah. I, like that was what the British film industry was built around for like a five year period. Yeah. And I had to review every single one of them. And I, I think that makes me even less predisposed to it, to this film. So I was, I was slightly surprised that I liked it as much as I did, which wasn't a whole lot, but I was really like, <laughs> Oh, I want to kill you. Well, as you soon like, as I realized the richiness of it, I'm like, Oh God, what are you going to do? Marry Madonna next? What were you like? What? I'm British. I got to review the British films. What are you saying here? What are you, a bunch of racists? Oh. Against Brits? What are you saying? <laughs> I spot a meme. Uh, why don't you just call me a limey? Why? Why don't you? Why, why don't we? You yeah, no. It just really. Ugh. Why? Why? Well, because uh, no originality. <laughs> nope. I'm afraid not. But like I said, if you've never seen Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels and yeah. Snatch and all that, then you're probably going to see this and go, "I'll see what these guys are bitching about." This is a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well. There's some good, there's some fun bowling bowling sequences and a couple of really entertaining nasty murders uh, that yeah. are kind of hilarious, including a very good uh, smothering in a bowling alley. I'm going to quote you on that really fun nasty murders. <laughs> Put that on the cover. <laughs> well, officer, I know it really looks bad for me with this body in my living room, but let me play this recording here of Richard, who's over here all the time, who I think is the guy you should be looking at. <laughs> <laughs> Take me away, officer. He, he likes murder. Like is such a subjective term. (laughs) As is murder. Is it subjective? I mean, like, I'll agree with you, but murder, you're either murdered or you're not, unless you're in some twisty Hitchcock film. uh, Or you've got a good lawyer. True. Uh. All right. Let's move on to a documentary that is also has something to do with genre, depending on how you look at it, which is Mirage Men, which is a 2013 documentary uh, based on a book that was quite popular and premiered at Fantastic Fest. I did not actually get to see this at Fantastic Fest. I did. I, I actually ended up sharing a bus with the uh, uh, the filmmakers at the time. We had a nice oh. conversation about it. So did you check your watch afterwards, see if you had any missing time? Uh, check my teeth to see if I had any missing fillings, but that's standard. <laughs> um, this is a film about UFOs, except it's not. Yeah. Um, it really wants to be a film that is fair to the subject. It really tries hard. I mean, there's a sequence early on where they're interviewing this believer and she's like, I'm not going to be a part of this fucking movie if all you're going to do is try and convince everyone that the United States government is responsible for all UFO sightings because that's bullshit. And they're like, no, no, that's not what we're trying to do here at all. Except for 80% of the film, that's precisely what they're trying to do. And then there's this little part at the end, they're going, 
but you know, they're like, all right, fair, you know, you, you don't want to turn off a portion of your audience. And, and maybe that's a good thing because if you can inject a bit of rationality into an otherwise rather irrational group of people, you know, and you have enough there to make them go, come on, this is not just a hate. We're not just hating on everything you believe. Then that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, um, but the story here follows Richard Doty, who is maybe like, I mean, he is, what's the word? He's a spy in some ways yeah. on, on the, on the American people. He's a, he's an agent provocateur. Yeah. Uh, Doty was, uh, his story is that he is part of a program who, that is, intended to kind of provoke and dump information into the UFO community. And he does it very well. And he, you know, years later, things that he told one person have now become standard information that's scattered yeah. around. And the basic, the basic um, premise of the, of the documentary is that the US government had a very, had and probably still has, a very long-running campaign of disinformation about UFOs. And they've deliberately set people up to, you know, carry this water into the, into the community to either. And that, that's what it's really fascinating is why are they doing this? Is it to hide the reality of UFOs? Is it to make up a story about UFOs so they can cover up the fact that they're actually doing, you know, weird testing, uh, around the, uh, around America? Uh, one theory that somebody comes up with is that this is purely an experiment in seeing how a story travels so they can learn how to manipulate uh you know popular media and popular culture because if you tell people you know where else are people going to find out about ufos at roswell from other than yeah. if you deliberately dump this story and so you can see how the story flows out it's about control it's about information and it's about how some lives have been ruined by this because people have gone i truly believe this and have either been written off as cranks or have been harassed or feel that uh, uh, and eventually just you know collapse under the weight of, of believing they know this truth yeah the one guy this starts with is this guy who was a very rich guy a very well-respected well-liked guy who started seeing the weird lights and stuff over area 51 and started basically being a, he thought himself as a patriot so he started contacting the government going look you should know there's some weird stuff going on here and i don't know what it is but either you want better security or you want to look into it and so Doty, who's like really as far as we can tell his first real job was dealing with this guy I was in charge of sort of playing with them and prodding him and poking him to see how far they could take, which Doty claims they're, they're, they're covering up for experimental aircraft or what later would become drone technology and stealth technology and stuff like that, uh, which around this period of time was indeed what they were playing with, as we know now. But they went so far with this guy as to build UFO models and like, you know, crashed UFOs and put them like up in the hills and then fly him over them and go, oh, yeah, look down there. See, there's one of them. I mean, why would you fuck with a guy that much? They were I mean, when you're talking about, you know, in the 80s <laughs> and the Russians are everywhere. I mean, we're just watching the show, The Americans, you know, yeah. you're like going, they're willing to do go to wacky lengths to cover up stuff from the Russians to the point of creating and uh, adding to this mythology it's not that surprising. I mean, really, for me, and I've heard some people say, well, whatever, this is more ridiculous than they're actually being UFOs. No, it isn't. Yeah. Occam's razor, buddy. <laughs> the simplest explanation is the usually the right one. And in this particular case, it really is the simplest explanation considering the time. 
watching, you know, I mean, you, right from the start, you're like going, so is this guy a villain? Richard Doty, is he a villain? What he did? I mean, he literally drove the sane guy batshit insane. Like he lost his mind and had to go into like an institute because he was just it's that paranoid and freaked out. Yeah. I'd say he's a villain, yeah. <laughs> but he constantly, you know, I mean, he's very forthcoming in this documentary. He talks about, like, look, I'm just following orders. Hello, Nuremberg trials. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm doing what they told me. We really, I mean, it's not like we we're murdering this guy. We we're just trying to put this information out there. And they talk a lot about as well, as you said, studying how the information evolves. The fact that a lot of the stuff that they invented in the mytholo- in the UFO mythology is now stuff people claim they see all the time. It's like, it couldn't possibly be because we made that up. Yeah. I mean, if you look back through the lore, like, nobody saw saucers until, like, one fake story. Like, that was admitted later to be a fake story. And then from then on, it was all saucers. Originally, yeah. it was cigar-shaped craft. And now, it's ever since it was saucers, you're like, well, what does that mean? Why did it become saucers when we know that first story was faked with the first saucer? Like, there's some interesting things to say about the way we perceive things based on preconceived notions. And this know? actually does hit on a kind of long-running argument within the UFO community. Uh, years and years ago, I used to read one of my favorite websites was the uh, Groom Valley Desert Rat, which is this guy who was basically outside of the White Sands testing facility who spent all his time going, this is what's really happening at the Skunk Works and at these testing facilities. And what's happening is testing of, uh, testing of new equipment, but also, and this is one thing they don't touch on, uh, which would have been interesting for them to, to deal with. The And I know that they actually researched it, but they just didn't have time to put it into the film, is that they're... You know, these facilities are off the map. They're off the grid. I mean, literally, they didn't, you know, these places were, were obliterated from the map. You couldn't even tell they existed. Um, and, you know, they were just, you know, working with exotic chemicals. When they <laughs> finished with them, they take them out, put them in a pit and burn them. And uh, you were having people were developing, like, these exotic cancers or their lungs were basically peeling away inside. And they were going, oh, it's not happening. It's all covered by national security. You can't do anything. And basically, it was an environmental crime going on in these facilities. So that's another reason to want to hide this stuff and say, it's UFOs. Yeah. It's not us experimenting There's on new stealth all sorts stealth of kit. really nasty shit going on around there that was probably creating weird atmospheric effects yeah. one way or the other. And I, yeah, I think this film... It's fascinating. I really enjoyed this hugely. It very much owes uh, a lot of debts to uh, the school of documentaries like uh, 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 Machines of Loving Grace um, and uh, Why We Fight. Okay. That feel, you know, that combination of archive footage and contemporary interviews. It has a really nice kind of dark, weird tone to it and, and I think keeps you off kilter just enough. Well, there's so many surprises with what happens with these characters because with Dodie, we're like, okay, here's a guy who's just, you know, I mean, he was a, it was a government job and he's saying, yeah, none of this was real. And then, like, turns around and not only does he just sort of declaim any real responsibility for his actions, but then goes, yeah, but you know what? I've since then, the, you know, the government showed me some stuff that there's just no real explanation for. And I'm telling you, UFOs are real. And, you know, he's a regular attender at, like, MUFON conferences yeah. <laughs> and everything. And you're, like, going, I I don't know what to make of this guy. Is he still doing this? Is this still his job? And he's still 
putting out misinformation because like he it was he was you know broken who he was years ago you know public it was made public by I forget who it was one reporter who was like no this is ridiculous fuck this I'm going public with this guy and you know bust his cover as it were yeah. and it made, much it, to the and that's one of the better pieces of archive right. footage because this happens much to the chagrin of many of the UFO enthusiasts who were like no this can't be true la 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 not listening not listening and, it, and this is about the power of belief yeah you know and how far people will go to believe the craziest things, even when they're disproved, yeah. even when the person telling them goes, no, it's not real, they'll still cling on to it. That's part of what's really yeah, fascinating and powerful about Mountains of evidence and proof that this isn't real and how you came to believe what you believe and people will still believe. Just look at the anti-vaccine, uh, anti-vaccine crowd. Ta-da! <laughs> You're like, how much proof do you need? <laughs> Jesus Christ! Could we put Jenny McCarthy on a UFO? <laughs> right? Please. Jenny McCarthy. If Jenny McCarthy comes out and says there are no UFOs, the whole thing was faked by the U.S. government, this discussion would be over. Yeah. If <laughs> Yeah, but if Jenny McCarthy said that oxygen was bad, I'd, I'd you know, breathe faster. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I'm kind of with the, uh, you know, there are a lot of theories as to, and I forget what the, there's even a term for it, the theories as far as life in the universe and why, the, if they haven't contacted us, why they haven't. And the one I like the best is because they thought, you know, why bother, quite frankly, like that we're sort of a wildlife preserve Really, they saw like, the episode to single out and went done, done. Yeah. No, they're like going, why would we? What possible benefit outside of like if we needed to strip mine their planet, would we need to go there? And there's so many planets in the universe. Why would they bother needing to strip mine a, a populated place? They went to Las Vegas and found the, and I kid you not, the Kardashian store. There is a store <laughs> oh in the God. Mirage, and it is just dedicated to the Kardashians. And the weird thing is, they all work there. Ugh. <laughs> See, no, because none of them have got a real job. Ooh. You're like, what's this on this shelf? Oh, no, that's Kim Kardashian's butt. Uh. <laughs> Sorry. Who? Apparently, somebody out there really wants a life-size Khloe Kardashian body pillow. Oh, my God. That's yep. frightening. Are we done? Yeah. Yeah, um, no. I, I, I really... would like a life-size Amber Heard body pillow, but still. <laughs> quiet, quiet hentai boy. <laughs> no, I, I think this is a really, really strong, fascinating documentary that takes a weird subject and handles it in a weird way and pulls it off and, and really brings all those odd strands together in an extremely powerful and tragic and moving, but still intellectually insightful way. I really got a lot from this documentary. And this is the second time I watched it. The second time I'm like, ha, wow. I think that, that there, and like, you know, unless you're, you know, if you're a UFO believer, I recommend you believe this, you watch this too, because a lot of the UFO believers, you know, the people who are really serious about it have incorporated this information into the context of their belief system. They're like, I still absolutely believe in Roswell. I still absolutely believe that UFOs visit us. Just now we know that there's a large portion of this information that was put out in Monks there that is bullshit. And it's important if you believe in this stuff to know what is definitively bullshit and yeah. what isn't. So I don't think this by any means disproves the existence of UFOs. You know, I mean, it's certainly there's so much of it that what turned out to be bullshit. Yeah. But uh, at the same time, you can wrap your own beliefs around it and still get a lot from this movie. It, it doesn't disprove the existence of UFOs, but it does prove the existence of a determined attempt by the U.S. government to mess around with people's minds when it comes to what they think about UFOs. Yeah, I mean, I think and it's a huge thing to say, look, there's just an overwhelming amount of evidence now that the government was intentionally putting out misinformation about UFOs to incredibly elaborate extents. So now... 
you really have to take a lot of the stuff with a lot more salt than previously. Yeah. Oh, that uh, what's the guy Lazar or something like that? You know the name? Oh uh, yeah, Bob Lazar. Yeah. Has there ever been a documentary about that guy? I don't know. I think there should be because he is a Fruit Loop and a half. He is, but he's the guy who's like, oh, I work for the government, and they brought me in, and they showed me, and brought me on board a UFO, and he's like UFOologist, like he's there, like he's our fucking smoking gun, is like, or alternately, really crazy guy with schizophrenia, or you know, he's Whitley Stryber in a different hat. Yeah, well, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yes, yeah, I'm a sci-fi author. No one's buying my books. Hey, I got abducted by aliens. Now hey. everyone's buying my books. <laughs> Next stop, starts a religion. <laughs> Did he start a religion? No. Oh, okay. I don't no, know. there's only one of them. Yeah, give him time. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's move on to another documentary, another one I really enjoyed, Harry Dean Stanton, Partly Fiction. This actually played at South by Southwest this year. I did not get to see this. Brian did, and he was raving about it to me. This is a very odd way to make a biographical documentary. But for me, with the exception of maybe going a little too heavily into the musical sequences, it works. And Harry Dean Stanton, uh, now I believe 86. Yeah. I mean, he is like... And he's looked here for the past 50 years. Yeah, yeah. He's like had that whole zombie thing going for quite some time. And then there's William Shatner, who's 83, who looks 50. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how is that? An axe 20. <laughs> I think Harry Dean Stanton is the picture in his attic. Right? Yep. That could be it. Um, Harry Dean Stanton is one of the great character actors, you know. Very few roles in his life where he was the lead. One of which they go into at length here, Paris, Texas, by yep. Jim Vendors. But... Just a fascinating guy with a lot of fascinating friends and stories from his life. At one point, for a couple of years, he was roommates with Jack Nicholson. I mean, he's just, he, like, it's heavily insinuated that he was having sex with Debbie Harry. Yeah. Uh, like, I mean, he had a crazy life. And it's him, in his own words, and then some interviews, talking about this life, but done in a very impressionistic sort of way. This is not a biographical documentary. This is a portrait this is about, you know, catching moments and glimpses and aspects of Harry Dean Stanton as he is today. And when it talks about his past, it talks about it in a way that reflects on him now. And he is just, you get the feeling that by the time you come out, that this is a guy who sacrificed everything to be where he is. He's, you know, he's one point north of being a drifter. Yeah. You know, he sings songs with his friends and he's, he's got a lot of people who like him and so many people who worked with him but he's not really connected to it anybody it feels like if there weren't these people who didn't admire what he did so much he would have just stopped doing anything yeah you know like he's like people seek him out and he goes okay good to get work done but he seems like one of those guys like people come and grab him out of his weird little existence yeah and go, okay now you're gonna be in a movie <laughs> and the the most where he seems happiest are when he's hanging out at this bar that he's yeah. been going to for the last 40 years with yeah. the same bartender who's known him forever. And, and the same, uh, near as I can tell, like bar slugs hanging out. Yeah. You know, if you've ever worked in a bar, you know these guys, the regulars who are there right at the beginning of happy hour every day till like eight or nine where they stumble out and are like 60. <laughs> yeah. And, it, like, and the only difference between him and the rest of them is that he, eventually he goes... Oh, sorry, lads, I've got to go off and be in the Avengers. Right. You know, it's like, what the hell? How are you? And it's a really fascinating portrait of one. It's, it's you know, it's you know, much like that guy Dick Miller, which came out last yeah. year as well, which is you know, another por another example of a guy who is almost famous for being himself at this point, 
because he's been in so many things he's the definitive oh you're in this and this and that and you were in aliens and you were you, know, you were an alien and you were in paris texas and you've been in eight billion other things and i remember you in cool hand luke when you didn't look like you've been embalmed um, <laughs> he really he, does look he does look embalmed. like he's been embalmed and it's 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 a tribute to him, but it, it, there is also an element of sadness. And there's a, a great moment where Vin Vendors is discussing actors who bring as much as he does to the part, and he says, "You know, they're they've got to, they're putting so much out there, and particularly with Harry Dean Stanton, who you know doesn't say a lot. He's very taciturn. He's, everything is through his face." And Vendor says he, he he puts so much of himself in there. There's not really, really much left for him that he dumps his emotional life into there. And you kind of feel that, you know, he's he's lost a lot. And it's never explicitly said, oh, shouldn't you feel sorry for Harry Dean Stanton? But you've got the feeling that, like, you know, if he if the cameras went away tomorrow, he wouldn't exist and he wouldn't know how to deal with himself. And he seems he seems very lonely. It seems like he would thing about like. It. Like, be standing in the desert, and we'd just watch him weather away, and yeah. then he'd just be dust floating along, and, like, it's, like, how it always was supposed to be. Like, yeah. he's this weird force of nature, you know? And he is, in his own way, a very powerful guy. You know, there's something about, as a, oh, I forget who it is who says in there, I think it's David Lynch who said, there's something about guys who can say so much more by saying so much less. And yeah. Terry Dean Stanton is one of those guys. And he, you know? he, there's so much of his life he doesn't want to talk about. And that's really fascinating. There's a guy who agrees to do a, a biopic about about himself. He's like, he's like I'm not, I'm not going to talk mom. about family. I'm yeah. not going to talk about parents. We had a relationship. Uh, what are you going to do? You know, there was this woman that I loved, and you know, she went off and you know worked with Tom Cruise and went off with him, and I probably shouldn't have. You know, yeah, Rebecca De Mornay. Yeah, it was like that's a weird thing. You're like, the, you get these glimpses of this guy who's clearly very charismatic. And people love being with him. And he's got a nice singing voice as well, which comes out a lot. Yeah, there's several, like, basically almost chapter stops where it's yeah. just him singing while somebody else plays the guitar of, like, standards. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, he was saying early on he considered being a musician. He had to choose, am I going to be a musician or an actor? And I think life sort of chose for him, yeah. ultimately. But I, I, I mean, I really love this, but, it, you know, there is, it's, it's quite sad in a lot of ways and i didn't expect it to be because you know that guy dick miller is basically it's such a cheerful thing it's kind of the yeah. the antithesis of that is they, well, they make it they make a very interesting double bill he's and a, it's not long so you could have them in double bill without right. worrying. it's an yeah. hour and 16 minutes yeah um he's one of those guys he's very like sort of zen in his sort of like all things pass you know all this life it's just what it is and then it'll be over and what difference does it make you know you live you do what you can to be happy End of story. Somebody else's story then. Blah, 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 blah. And he's very flat and emotionless about it. It's like, look, it's just how it is. Don't worry about it. Yeah. You know, like he just doesn't take life seriously, <laughs> you know. And watching these people, David Lynch, Sam Shepard, Chris Christopherson, Vim Vendors, and De Debbie Harry. Sam who are, Shepard. Who are interviewed for this yeah. are so fascinating with the th just their wildly different takes on their experience with him. Um, especially like Chris Christopherson, who apparently, uh, uh, Harry Dean Stanton got him started in the industry, like brought him <laughs> onto his first film. And they've got all these wacky stories, like, uh, you know, like Chris Christopherson is like, you remember the time we did that? And Harry Dean Stanton actually looks kind of embarrassed. He's like, I don't want to talk about that. I, I, I think he's, he's probably one of these, like I said, he's probably great fun on the set, really comes alive there. And therefore you take him out of that environment. And I think you're seeing 
it's almost like, is this the real him? Or is the real him the one that only exists on set? Right. Yeah. Good, good. Yeah. And this is, like I said, it's a very artful f- film. I really recommend it. This yeah. is well worth going out of your time for. Um, I don't know if I could quite say the same thing for our next film, which is The Motel Life. Oh, we are going... This is going to come to blows. Uh-oh. I can feel this. Uh, this is a 2012 American mystery thriller with Emile Hirsch, who I'm a huge fan of. I just think he's one of those actors who should have been an A-list actor, and something went wrong. I don't know what. So maybe onset stuff, I don't know. But for whatever reason, you know, after Into the Wild, he should have been, you know, this immediate A-list actor. And it was Although like, I suspect it's probably that he didn't want to. Yeah, maybe. I have a funny feeling, because you look at the projects that he's picked. Yeah. I think he's not the kind of he, guy who wants to do what Hollywood is doing. I mean, he was just in Lone Survivor, and he was really good in that. Yeah. You know, uh, but it's with him, his... he. He and Stephen Dorff was an actor I suspect was never going to be an A-list actor, uh, although I did enjoy him in Blade quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're brothers, very pathetic brothers that um, were told by their mom early on who died young. It's like, look, no matter what, don't let anybody separate you. Run if you have to, but you guys always have to stay together. You're brothers and you're the only two people you have for each other. And with the exception of some flashbacks, this is really them and their... I guess they're supposed to be mid twenties, early thirties. It's it never really I, says. I, well, I think Stephen Dorff, who is aging obscenely well, I, th- I get the feeling that they're, you know, in the Emil Hirsch is probably supposed to be just south of thirty. Yeah. Dorff's character is supposed to be just north. The two people who should definitely know better by this yeah. point, and they're but just dumb. They work odd jobs. They drink constantly, like whiskey, which is you know, as Willie Nelson said, I survived everything, but. Whiskey is the one thing that almost killed me. <laughs> uh, and they go from motel to motel just uh, on, until, uh, 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 why can't I forget? Stephen Dorff, who plays Jerry Lee, he accidentally hits a kid with his car when he's kind of drunk and he's coming back from like just having broken up with his girl, basically broken up with his girlfriend, getting a big fight with his girlfriend or the girl he was currently fucking anyway. Uh, and panics, tries to com- commit suicide. It just shoots his own leg off, basically, and is in the well, hospital. Well, shoots his stump because they, he yeah. hasn't. He has previously. Oh, I shot thought, himself in the. I thought he was just injured, like he. No, was... no, 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 no. He, 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 he. The stump's already there. If you look early on. Oh, okay. See, I got the impression that his leg was damaged and he had trouble. No, walking, no, no. He had, a, he had an artificial stump. leg before that. Oh, okay. Fair because enough. if you actually look later on, the, the well, yeah, we're kind of spoiling fair, something fair there. But he, he, he shoots himself in his stump. Yeah, and then he's sitting there panicking, going, "We got to get out of here sooner or later. They're going to figure out I did this." Uh, Emile Hirsch's character, Frank, is n- not a great planner, but clearly of the two is the one that actually had potential, whereas uh, Jerry Lee, not so much. <laughs> and it's kind of about what happens when they go and go back to a town they were in once before and Emile re-encounters, you know, the one that got away. And I found this myself to be maudlin to the point of being incredibly dull. Um I couldn't get into really either one of these characters, although I thought uh, I thought Dorf was overplaying it and Emil Hirsch was underplaying it. I, I, I'm, I'm getting that you really liked this. I loved this. Really? Okay. This is my favorite film of the week. It really is. Okay. It's a very... It, it has the feel of a lot of mid-80s indie dramas, which is uh, an era I just love and I wish more films were, were kind of coming through that, that had that, you know... A certain degree of honesty. Yeah. And I, I love the character, the fact that you've got Dorf is the guy who is just old enough to realize that he's fucked up beyond redemption. 
that he doesn't feel he's got a shot anymore and that, you know why is he even bothering other than the fact that he's with his brother and his brother needs him and his, yeah and yeah. his brother thinks that he's the more responsible of the two and just about holds the pair of them together and i, and I thought they had great chemistry and there's a a, a a big part, uh, the, there's a framing mechanism almost that Emil Hirsch's character tells stories. And Stephen Dorff's character is an illustrator. And there's this kind of real tragedy there that you go, if they'd have ever been given a real shot, they would have been successful. You know, that these people could have really gone somewhere. And there's a, a hint that maybe, like, the talent, the, the true talent might one day pay off. And um, I, you know, there's this great scene where Dorf talks about fuck ups and losers. I thought you were going to say golf. No, <laughs> but this, yeah, this fantastic scene about where they talk about fuck ups and losers and, and and accepting that and transcending it. And I thought that was really, I mean, yeah, I could see how you might come and think, you know, it's heavy handed and maudlin. But I loved that. You know, I really, you know, I, I thought this was powerful. I thought it was beautiful. Uh, this is one of the first films I've seen Dakota Fanning in where I didn't feel like, oh, the bear dropped Dakota Fanning in. She's, <laughs> uh, she's really, really good. In this. I do really like Dakota Fanning, for yeah. the record. I, I think she's quite talented. Yeah, I think I think she's underused and yeah. underutilized. But I thought here, I don't know, I just this just really moved me. I thought it was, you know... Were you taking ecstasy at the time? No, I was not. Uh, <laughs> I, I was... I was you know, when I first saw the trailer, I thought this is visually interesting. Yeah. And I thought it was, you know, when it, you actually see it, it's the integration of these animated sequences based on Dorf's characters' illustrations and the stories that Emil Hirsch is narrating. I mean, and this, this tragedy of these two guys who are still basically telling each other bedtime stories and kind of frittering away their talent and their life. Um, and it catches, you know, I know people who, who come from or spent time in Reno and a lot of it is centered around Reno and there's just loser culture of like, this is the, the less salubrious Las Vegas. And you really feel that. And it's kind of like... A sense of decay. Yeah. The uh, and, and sadness and his desperate friends who, you know, their ambitions are so low. And Emil Hirsch has got just enough of a spark to get them moving. And this tragedy of like, you know, the fact that he has to deceive his own brother at various places. And yeah. you really feel that this, what I really liked about it was that I was really rooting for these guys by the end. And there's a sense where you go about 20 minutes before the end. It's like, this can either end really, really bleakly, or this can be a really, really great redemptive story. And, you know, it keeps that up pretty much until the last couple of minutes where it actually does decide where, where it wants to go. And I think it did that beautifully. I don't think you see that enough. And it's not a, there's nothing trite about the ending. It, it, you know, goes to a place that makes so much narrative and character sense. And again, I think it's a character study. I really love this. I, this is I mean, one of my favorite, I, honestly, this is one of my favorite films of the year. I agree with you. It's a character study. No question about that. I just found that I never really was able to care that much about the characters. I thought that the animated sequences, while very cool looking, were, and I think this is intentionally so anachronistic, but it also took me out of the story rather than added to it. Um, I just, I really couldn't care by the end what mm. happened to either one of them for me. I was like, you know, and, and I'm not surprised this is directed and produced by brothers. <laughs> you know, I'd be curious to know what their story is. Like, yeah. guys, did y'all grow up a couple drunks out in Reno and you got your shit together and became filmmakers? I mean, what happened? But, uh, you know, I, I'm glad you liked it because I didn't think this was terrible. I just thought, well, here's another one of these. 
yeah. is what it felt like to me. So I don't know. We have to agree to dis- disagree on that one. Chris uh, uh, Chris Christopherson is great in it. You've Chris, got, you've I, I got will to, not whatever, argue whatever with you. you say, well, he's Chris he's, Christopherson. He's he's just great. Yeah, but sometimes he's just kind of mumbly. In this, he's you know he's legitimately phenomenal, and you can barely tell it's him. Yeah, it's, did it occur to you that it's like them, him and Dorf getting together again because they were both in Blade once again? True. He played True Whistler. Story. True story. <laughs> I, I think this is one of these. You know, for me, I think this is the kind of film I, I wish just got more respect and distribution. I mean, maybe it's just that you know this is the kind of film that you know my art house introduction was films like this. Yeah. And I think it really you know touches something for me that I, I don't get from a lot of films. The I thought Hirsch and Hirsch and Dorf in an odd way. Is that what you're saying? I need an adult. Uh, I, I think Dorf and Hirsch, I think their scenes were, you know, they could have been dull and maudlin, but for me, uh, there was just this kind of dark, tragic wonder about it. And it, it, it's Dorf, I think he's a man who was cursed by being good looking. Yeah, and it's funny because he looks like hell in this, and you, know, you see he's those ragged. Uh, yeah, you see you see the adverts he's been doing for Blue Electronic Cigarettes recently. Product placement, pay us. Um, <laughs> and he still looks like Stephen Dorff, and I'm like, God damn you, Dorff! Which is how he gets away with playing a character who is you know clearly much younger than he is, uh, but has lived a kind of ragged life, and he, I, you know. And he Hirsch, actually Hirsch just looks like a thug. They actually look like brothers in yeah, here too, which is so weird. How they pull because they don't look anything like, but no. here they really do. Yeah, I think it's, I, you know the Polskis. I, I think pulled off a little bit of, of kind of uh, dark magic here because I really just love this. Yeah. I found it enchanting. Fair I really enough. did. Well, let's move on to the next title that Richard will probably be wrong about. Yeah, and... <laughs> normally am. <laughs> happened before, happened again. Uh, although you're, you're probably, For I, think, I think when I watched that one, it was like at three in the morning anyway. So yeah, maybe you, my you might have been a bit, bit, bit down on it. I'll give it another shot. Uh, maybe yeah. I will. All right. And the next thing we're talking about is a big box set that came out. The Nutty Professor 50th anniversary Blu-ray, which is to say not the Eddie Murphy one, even though Eddie Murphy lately looks like he's been doing this for about 50 years too. Oh, long. and when I saw that, it took 50 years off my life, I swear. <laughs> so I actually like Eddie Murphy's Nutty Professor. For I, Laban. I, I'm going to go so far as to say... I kind of prefer Eddie Murphy's Nutty Professor. I think it's actually a funnier film in a lot of ways, although it does lead to you know his the Meet the Clumps, which no, no, which is horrible, yeah. fart humor. Like like that movie is one long fart joke, and that's it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, I think why I like Eddie Murphy's version better is because Jerry Lewis plays you know the 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 straight professor, the Doctor Jekyll side, as so ridiculous and improbable that I'm like. I feel like I'm watching like the annoying spastic kid in fifth grade, you know, like I'm, I just, wow. Keep the bag of sugar away from me. I was like, what are you doing? Fucking stop. I mean, it's almost, it almost feels like he's doing a parody of someone with Down syndrome. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they've so mutated his face, like with giant buck teeth and his crossed eyes and just the whole Wayne dogs. And you're like, what are you doing? This is like, I'm not, I feel like this should offend me, this impression you're doing. And I realize that times have changed. And I realize I don't that know, I think any... you still put this on the Big Bang Theory and get away with it. Ooh, <laughs> oh, did, did I say I that? I, did I do that? Yeah. I, I, you know, I realize out there, if you're French, you think I'm crazy, but that he's a national treasure, even though he's not French. I really had trouble, like, almost turned this off. Until he finally becomes Buddy Love, in which case the film picks up significantly. Mm-hmm. Because 
you know, he plays, like I said, the doofiest professor in the world. Right in the beginning of the film, he blows up a class and somehow keeps his job <laughs> for apparently the second time he's blown up a class. As you um, do. We see that he has the hots for Stella Stevens in this film, who's one of his students and who can blame him because nah, Stella Stevens hey, is lady. absolutely delectable. Rawr, rawr, she rawr, is so rawr. hot, it's ridiculous. Um and then he, you know, he's like, oh, well, I can't be with her because she wants a guy who's tougher and more self-assured. So, of course, he invents a potion and takes it and becomes Buddy Love, the suave, able to talk to women, completely in control. You know, it's Jerry Lewis playing Dean Martin. That's that's why I actually have a, a soft spot for this film, because A, once once the Dean Martin-esque figure turns up, it actually gets quite fun because, it, you know, he is horrible and sleazy and disgusting. And, and the cinematography is actually phenomenal at that point. You know, it's kind of almost kind of weirdly technical or impressionist. Yeah. It's, you know, it takes a real change uh, of tone uh, halfway through. It goes from kind of like a bad Disney-esque comedy to something really kind of a little bit edgy and interesting. But if you, what I really love about this film is that this is clearly a hate letter to his long-time performing partner. <laughs> yeah. This is, like, this is him he going, is so... I'm the crazy wacky one, and okay, that may drive you insane, and I may be a bit incompetent, and it, like life may not, you know, and I, I admit, that's how you see me. Yeah. But at least I am not a screaming asshole. And it, it's clearly, he went to the studio and went, you know how much we all hate Dino? Like, really, we just all despise him. Well, yes, yes, but go on. <laughs> okay, Give me the money to make a budget, yeah, a big budget film that basically shows that Dean Martin is an asshole of unconscionable proportions. And you've got to go, kudos, Mr. Lewis, for daring to take that. Well, I mean, and it's so not even subtly an impression of James, uh, James Dean, uh, of Dean Martin when he is Mr. Hyde, as it were, yeah. in here. I mean, like, in every, down to the way he wears his hair and the things that he says. I mean, like, his just, his patois <laughs> is like, Wow, that's that's Dean Martin all over it. And that's where I actually started enjoying this when I realized just that. It's like, wow, this is a pointed attack piece on Dean Martin. Yeah. <laughs> and a bit of a misogynist tirade as well. Yeah. You know, the idea bit. that, like, Stella Stevens' character is, like, just strong enough to say, that's terrible, I won't let a guy talk to me like that, and yet, like, is overwhelmed by her own vaginal moistness every time he, he tells her what to do. You're like, oh, man, this is so embarrassing watching it. Which is another thing I like the, the remake better for, where it's like, hey, the character in there at least is like, you know, the, the you know, she right off the bat is kind of like, wow, Buddy Love is kind of a douche. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't think I want to be with this guy. Um, and, you know, and also like the, you know, the professor, the Dr. Jekyll, Dr. Jekyll, Dr. Jekyll character is actually a real human being. You know, you're like, he's just super overweight and little, like, if he's clumsy, it's because he's so overweight he bangs into things. Did you ever, ever heard the, the, uh, Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra steaks recipe? story i don't believe i have so. uh, a total side point but while we're here um somebody <laughs> once asked uh dean martin about his steak recipe and he wrote it down and it, it said you know you know get a nice piece of steak warm the pan oil it a little light bit of seasoning have a scotch a, bur a shot of scotch by the side put the steak in the pan blah, 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 drink the bourbon blah, 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 and finally take it out let it rest for a second and frank sinatra's recipe was call <laughs> call dean martin <laughs> <laughs> Tell Dino to make you a steak. Go over there while he's making the steak. Drink his bourbon. 
So even Frank Sinatra, who also was a douchebag, allegedly. Oh, well. Um, is that, are we past allegedly? I think, I know, but I, I, you know, I went to the Sinatra Steakhouse in Las Vegas. It was rather good, so I'm being nice. Um, but, but, you know, even he was like, Dean Martin's a douche nozzle of unconscionable. And this, I think this is, it's kind of weirdly daring cinema, if you take that into account. It's the opposite of Robocop. You have to go on with, with some understanding <laughs> and some presumption of what, what this was about. No, no, no. But this you, is a box set. You mentioned this. It is, a- is. It's a big box set. They filled this up with stuff. I mean, a ridiculous amount of stuff, considering I really, outside of the historical narrative of what was happening here, don't see the appeal anymore. I mean, I get this kind of screwball comedy was m- much more acceptable back then. Now it's like barely tolerable to watch him <laughs> stumble around. And, ladies. Um, there's commentary with Jerry Lewis and Steve Lawrence. Yes. Jerry Lewis is in fact still alive. Oy. Uh, there's Jerry Lewis, no apologies, which is a, uh, a 21 minute documentary short with him at 87 as he continues to perform before a live audience in Las Vegas. <laughs> uh, there's the nutty professor per- perfecting the formula where Lewis discusses the origin and creation of the nutty professor. Uh, there is Jerry Lewis at work, which is a featurette looking at his early solo film career. There's about six and a half minutes of deleted scenes, a bunch of promos, uh, I'll th- 13 and a half minutes of bloopers, which you would not expect from a film this old. Rarely do you see blooper reels from, from, you know, films before like the eighties, really. Uh, there is Jerry at the Movieland Wax Museum with commentary by his son, uh, in 1973. There's some test footage. There's, uh, other extra footage. There is a, uh, you know, DVD copy of this is a DVD copy of his, uh, of two other movies by him, Cinderfella, which I did not get around to watching. Yeah, or- missed much. Huh? Didn't I didn't miss, miss much. much. Or The Errand Boy, which also I did not didn't get. Didn't miss around. much. And both those also come with commentary and bloopers. There's a CD. I was like, really? There's a CD of phony phone calls from 1959, 1972, with Jerry Lewis doing the Jerky Boys, basically, yeah. on people. You're like, yeah, okay, Jerky Boys? Jerry Lewis was doing it first, apparently. Who knew? Uh, there's a book called For Being a Person, ironically enough, from a guy who also reportedly was kind of a douchebag <laughs> of his life, uh, that was written by Jerry Lewis that was given as a gift to a crew of the Nutty Professor. There's a book with the storyboards. Uh, there's uh, the Nutty Professor script with handwritten notes, photographs, and a reproduction of the survey card from test screenings, and a personal message from Jerry Lewis. So if you are indeed a Jerry Lewis fan, this is the exhaustive version of the Nutty Professor. Now, I know in like a month or two, they're going to put out the just the Blu-ray on by itself, uh, you know, so which has all the, the bonus, the, the digital bonus features on it. But yeah, this is for the guy who's just like, hey, man, Jerry Lewis is my spirit animal, which is not me, by the way. Or somebody who just wants to listen to Jerry Lewis doing prank calls in the car. You know, I mean, for the record, Dean Martin might have been a bigger douchebag, but I'd rather watch a Dean Martin movie any day of the week. Yeah, true. Yeah. And I'll always listen to the Christmas album. Yeah. 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 All right. So let's move on. I'm looking at what we got left here. Oh, yeah. Okay. And the one that's actually going to be my pick of the week, even though this came out a fucking month ago and they just now sent it to me. I don't know what the hell's going on. <laughs> uh, it's like, what the seriously a month late you sent it to me but it's so good it's still my pick of the week which is the television show louis with louis ck season three now for some reason as near as i can tell they didn't even put out this is the first one they didn't even put out on blu-ray i have no idea why because i know the show is a huge success doing very well first two came out on blu-ray this one as near as i can tell is just on dvd but ultimately i'm just glad to have it because i think this is one of these shows that just gets better and better with every season it's 
he's this weird mix of like Lenny Bruce and Woody Allen and I don't even know Bill Hicks, maybe a little like of all these people, but done in a sort of like, this is my real life type sitcom where one episode might be really wildly funny all the way through, but never in the sense that you're watching a sitcom, but another one might be completely sad and dark. You know, you never know which way the show's going to go. Sometimes it's both in the same one. And he gets the best guest stars. This season has F. Murray Abraham, Melissa Leo, Mark Maron, Amy Poehler, Paul Rudd, Susan Sarandon, Jerry Seinfeld, Chloe Savigny, J.B. Smoove, and Robin Williams doing appearances. Robin Williams, by the way, in my favorite single bit of this whole season where he and Louis C.K. both show up, you know, graveside by this, you know, that guy being buried. And they're the only ones there. And, you know, they're both Robin Williams. Is playing Robin Williams, and you know, like, hey, do you want to go get some lunch? So they go out, and it's like they're talking kind of like guardedly about the guy who who died, who was like the guy booked for this comedy club, and then they both admit they fucking hated him. <laughs> they were like, oh, he's such a douche. He was the biggest dick. They're exchanging stories of all this dickish things this guy did, and like, the only reason I went is because after sitting here and thinking about what a dick this guy was, I realized no one was going to be at his funeral, and I felt bad, and I showed up because I was like, well, even if I was the biggest asshole in the world, I wouldn't want to be, you know, <laughs> and they're like, okay, he's like, remember he always wanted us to go to that one strip club? Like, did you ever go to that? He was always like, even though he was a dick, he'd rip us off for money. He'd do all sorts of dickish shit. And then at the end, he'd go like, hey, you guys, you want to come with me down to my strip favorite strip club? Did you ever go with him to that? No, I didn't either. So like, okay, let's go to the strip club. And they go to the strip club. And they're just kind of sitting there, and the girl's like, you want dances or what? It's a sleazy, horrible, <laughs> like, bottom of the bit, like, the landing strip-style strip club. And, uh, like, no, we're here because a friend of ours dies. It was a fan. It's like, oh, who? well, he, you know, the girl's like, I've been working here 10 years. Who was it? And they say his name. And the strip club fucking shuts down. They're like, <laughs> the DJ's like, the most amazing man I think any of us ever knew. <laughs> and, like, all the strippers are crying and holding each other. And they both leave and just look all serious and just start cracking up. (laughs) That's awesome. Like mixture of like comedy and maudlin and just, Oh, it works so well. And the show is filled with wonderful moments of Louis CK going through his life like that. I mean, it's such a great season. Uh, like stand-ups in here is there's one where he goes to Miami and he becomes best friends and has a sort of man crush on this younger lifeguard named Ramon who shows him the Cuban side of Miami and like gives him the whole tour of that world. Really, really funny. Um, uh, uh, there's a thing where his daughter tells him this joke about, uh, says he's talking about how kids tell jokes. He says, she's like, why didn't the, who didn't let the gorilla into the ballet? He's like, I don't, and you know, doing the routine. He's like, right off, first off the bat, I love this joke because I've been a comedian for 20 plus years and I've heard every joke there is. I have never heard this joke. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know who didn't let the gorilla into the ballet. She's like, the people whose job it was to assess and decide those sort of things. <laughs> I know. He's like, I'm sorry, but that's a funny joke. And only a little kid could have come up with that joke. And he goes off on this whole rant about, like, you know, trying to picture this scenario like gorillas walking in and texting on his phone. The guy's like, oh, oh, wait, buddy. No, no, no. You let one gorilla into the ballet. He freaks out and kills a bunch of people. Shame on the gorilla. (laughs) (laughs) Really, really great. This is so good. And, oh, my God, it's got, like, I mean, this gets so dark at points. The final episode of this season, uh, which is sort of a New Year's Eve, called New Year's Eve, where he's just, you know, he's all alone and he doesn't know what he's going to do. 
is one of the darkest things I've ever seen on TV that still ends up being kind of heartwarming in the Louis C.K. way by the end of it. This is such a great show. I, I really couldn't recommend it more. You can start it anywhere, quite frankly. There's no reason that you have to start with season one. Although, if you don't, you're missing a lot of really great yeah. episodes. But, yeah, season three is wonderful. Season four is now already airing. I haven't got a chance to watch any yet. From what I hear, it's even better. Um, I've already, every week, somebody's like, okay, now this one is the one that's the best Louis episode. Yeah. I see that on Facebook a lot. So, thoroughly recommend this. Absolutely wonderful. Out on DVD, my pick of the week. It's kind of like um, Curb Your Enthusiasm, but without... Uh, not Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yes, Curb Your Enthusiasm without uh, the, the misanthropy. Uh, well, it's, you know, he, he, he's, he's not a, a degree of faith in people. He doesn't yeah. have a lot of faith in himself. And that's always been the fascinating thing. And I loved his first series, which nobody remembers. Lucky Louie. Oh, yeah. No, that was which good. was Which was great and equally dark and, and kind of took the whole trope of the traditional sitcom and went, no, it's about this loser and all his friends are vaguely scummy. Um, <laughs> and, and there's no happy ending. It's like, you know, that was where he really first went. Uh, yeah, there's going to be jokes about him jerking off in the closet because, you know, his wife doesn't want to have sex and his kids are keep keep taking over the living room. Um, and, it, you know, he did that. And then it didn't work because of the format and he hit on the format. Now, I'm a couple of seasons behind on this, but season one is phenomenal. I cannot look forward more then I'm looking forward to seeing this because you know he's he's just on a roll and I think he's got to a point now where he can just be fundamentally honest even if it pisses people off. And it used to be that it pissed people off and it made his career more difficult, but now people love Louis C.K. for yeah. going, "No, you're wrong, you're idiots. We all know you're wrong and you're idiots. You know you're wrong and an idiot." You know, what we do is stupid and wrong and immoral and disgusting, well, but we keep doing it anyway. And I think that's that's you know long overdue. He, he has a way of being showing humility about pointing out that everybody's an idiot because he admits I'm one of these idiots. Like he's, he talks about stuff that he does that is like, isn't this sad and pathetic. And he's talking about it in a way you realize that we all do those things. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Oh shit. Uh, if I haven't sold the season D well enough yet, there's a multi-episode arc where they say David Letterman is retiring and they're considering bringing in Louie as a replacement uh-huh. on the late show. And he has to decide like, you know, I mean, versus his, you know, fear of failure so he intentionally sabotages himself whether or not he wants to do it and goes on a multi-episode training course with david lynch playing the guy who's training him (laughs) out of the talk show host and it's a riot you're like i can't believe i'm watching this right now i kept waiting for david lynch to transform into his character from twin peaks where he just shouts all the time (laughs) (laughs) anyway great stuff which brings us to our last title of the week and our giveaway Which is a, you know, this is one of these films that perform really badly in the theater. And I remember, I so I didn't go see it. And then I saw it on DVD and went, oh my God, this movie is a lot of fun. And it has so many surprises in it. And does a has weird story beats and arcs that you just don't see coming. And this movie is called Ravenous. Originally came out in 1999. The, the tagline is, you are who you eat. So yes, indeed, it is a cannibalistic film. The worst thing I can say about this film is ultimately that it doesn't know if it wants to be a straight horror film or a black comedy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think the beginning makes a mistake of splashing black comedy all over it. And then for most of it, it's not really a black comedy. No. It just has a sort of like... It, there's a campiness about it at best is what I could say in the comedic sense. But the story here, uh, 
is takes place during the Mexican-American, right after the Mexican-American War, where uh, Guy Pierce is a soldier that's being rewarded for heroism, even though he actually was was a complete coward. Uh, he played dead, but then when he was he was brought along with the other bodies into the enemy camp, found an opportunity and managed to capture the camp single-handedly. So he's like one of those hero by lucky happenstance. Although there is more to it, as we yes. find out later. Uh, but he is being not rewarded, even though publicly that's the story, but punished by being sent out to California or just, or, you know, not quite California, the Sierra Nevada mountain range, uh, at Fort Spencer, where basically eight guys run the whole place and it's just sad and everybody's a drunk or insane or a loser. Uh, the whole or, thing or is writing hymns. Yeah. The whole thing is run by, Je- um, Jeffrey Jones who we haven't seen in a long time because he apparently molested children. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that kind of puts a kink in your career. Yeah, yeah. kinky career. Yeah. Uh, uh, Colonel Hart, Jeffrey, Jeremy Davies plays Private Toffler, who is a very like so soft-spoken as to seem like he's kind of a crazy guy, uh, house reverend. David Arquette is a private who's just taking drugs with the local Indian tribe all the time, so he's just high consistently. Um, Neil McDonough is uh, I, one moment I love. It's like, yeah, he's a little intense. You may want to stay clear of him, and they just show him in like an Arctic scream, shirtless, screaming. Ah! <laughs> it's like Neil McDonough, perfect choice for that role. But uh, so he's a guy person. He's like, oh, I don't want to be here, but I don't have any choice. I'm no empathetic. You know, I I don't even know what I want to do with my life. And being that this is a long time ago, and you didn't even have the internet to apply for jobs, you're really kind of stuck with whatever they give you. Uh, but then everything is shaken up when Robert Carlyle, yes, Robert Carlyle from Train Spotting and Stargate Universe, wanders into the camp, uh, underfed, freezing. They you know warm him up and, and get his story where he's like, look, I was w- with a whole wagon train of people that was brought by this crazy like military guy who thought he had a shortcut to the mountains and he didn't. And we all hold up in this cave and it got to that point where everybody, you know, we ran out of food and then one guy died and I came back and they had cut off his legs and were eating them. And I admit I finally was so hungry. I started eating them too. And it got to the point where it was just too crazy. I had to leave because I realized murder was next up. So they're like, okay, well let's go and see what, you know, we got to go, fix the situation. So they take the group to go out there only to find out that Carlisle himself is indeed the person who's already killed and eaten everyone there, much like the Mr. Show sketch. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And there's a conceit in this film that indeed eating humans like the native Americans believe would give you their soul and strength, even though it makes you into a Wendigo, which is like, you know, you can't stop. Is that like a Wendigo? Is that like an Australian Wendigo? I think it is. Yes. <laughs> Wendingo? <laughs> yes, you're right. Wend- we Wendigo. From ethnol- Sorry, Wendingo. Um... Wendingo's ate my baby. <laughs> um, and that you get added strength, you heal. You basically turn into Wolverine without the claws, is what the, 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 the long and the short of it is. And one of the big conceits as well is that Guy Pierce was able to survive through the battle he was in in the first place in the earlier part of the film because under this cart, there was human blood con- constantly dripping into his mouth and he gained some de- degree of like, you know, virility and strength and what have you. Okay. It's a silly conceit. Cannibalism makes you into a superhero sort of, but it works. Yeah. This is a really fun film. The, the black comedy aspect you, you talked about, it's really interesting. There's a, there's a, uh, there's some deleted scenes on here, including uh, a really nice character beat for uh, Neil McDonough's character, which I really think that should have been included. And Antonia Bird, I think, made a mistake by cutting it out. Um, 
when you see those, it almost looks like one of those weirdly glacial, menacing um, spaghetti westerns where everybody is immoral, everybody is vile at some level. But then you realize part of the problem is that the soundtrack by Michael Nyman and um, what's his name, uh, Damon from Blur, and the gorillas, uh, is kind of weirdly chirpy and it's, it's period. It's done on banjos and, you know, uh, uh, foot organs and stuff like this. And it really doesn't, it really doesn't mesh with the visuals quite well. No. But you kind of like, if you, if you kind of phase that out a little bit, this is a phenomenal dark, uh, period piece and a really good horror. Um, yeah, cause it's genuinely frightening at yeah. points. It's really gory at points. Oh, yeah. Um, and all the performances are so intense. Yeah. I mean, Carlisle makes a hell of a villain, as you know, if you've ever seen a Robert Carlisle film. Yeah. Uh, when he's the good guy, you're like, ah, do I trust you? Yeah, exactly. Um, um, you're, you're, they cast Robert Carlisle. I'm thinking he's not going to stay completely squeaky clean in no. this movie. Uh, yeah. And, you know, everything I said sounds like the description of everything up until almost the end of any given movie. That's the first act. Yeah. Yeah. Because this goes some really weird, unexpected places after that. <laughs> yeah. I think the thing is, for me, I, I didn't like this when I originally saw it. And I realized rewatching it, oh, I don't like the soundtrack. And also the credits are just like, uh, seemingly fell in from the set of Risky Business, which is right. really inexplicable. Very, decision. very like, odd. This is a film that could possibly could do with. Um, with a little bit of an edit and some change, structural changes made afterwards. But it's like you know, the, it's it really like is. You, they you needed you to just say fuck together. it and throw in the animator from Better Off Dead to do the opening credits. There'd be oh, yeah. very little difference yeah. at that and point it, about it, screaming Mad George. Yeah. But underneath it, underneath those two little issues, which aren't particularly big, this is a phenomenal period piece it's, that has been forgotten about. It's got a very small, loyal fan base. I know that you know, Scott Weinberg has been saying for years, this film needs a DVD, a, good, a decent Blu-ray release. Well, Scott, it is your moment. This is here, finally. Thanks to Scream Factory. Yeah, again, Scream Factory, who, as we regularly point out, are finding all the things that you know, you've know you forgotten about. And sometimes you should be reminded in the case of things like this, and sometimes you shouldn't. Yeah, final exam final from a couple exam, of weeks ago. Which we are not uh, going to stop harping on anytime ever. soon. Just go back and listen to that <laughs> review, because we had fun. Um... <laughs> But yeah, I, the, I I enjoyed this so much more seeing it now than I did yeah. at the time of release. And I think you know, it's something that I think time has, has really served well. I mean, I think it's, you know, yeah, pretty unmissable at this point. Yeah, I absolutely agree. This is a lot of fun. And there is a chance out there for you guys to win it. Because like I said, this is our giveaway. So here is what you have to do. You're going to go on your Twitter and you are going to uh, at one of us. Uh, what is it? One of us, Nat, I guess, yep. is our Twitter, I think. Yeah. I should know these things you before should. I start talking. Probably. Um, and add with the hashtag, a uh, ravenous giveaway. Give us your own, what do you think? Your own cannibalistic. Who would you eat? Who would you eat and why? And how? And how. Why or how? We'll yeah. take either. <laughs> so if you can think of a particularly delicious dish, uh, involving, would, inv would involve a celebrity of your choosing. Go right ahead. Indeed. Um, yeah. uh, present company excluded. Of yeah, course. we're off the menu. Yeah, because I have enough sleepless nights as it is. <laughs> about you guys out there, I already have nightmares about being stalked by you guys. I don't need one where you're stalking me with a knife and a spoon. And I'm just stringy, so you really wouldn't. Yeah, yeah, that's I'd, true. You, I, don't, you wouldn't want. No. Yeah, yeah. You redheads, you're just. Like, I know. I know. Something terrible. about your meat tastes a little. Plus, you'd have to like. Pull off all the beard before you could. Oh, me. you, gotta, yeah, you like, have to pluck you first. Ugh, That's true. Vile. Yeah. Well, I have to be thoroughly shaved, so you don't want to get into that. Hey, either. 
<laughs> I've got this whole Robin Williams thing going on. I don't know. Moving no, on. No, I don't, thankfully. No one but Robin Williams has the Robin Williams thing I, going I, on. He, Did you see he actually apparently, he apparently shaved his whole chest and, and shoulders and everything recently? Uh, like now he's doing it. Now he's doing it regularly, and you're like going, "I would not want to have that job." Well, and it'd be well, well you know, it'd be uh, constant work. It, it, yeah, that's true. I mean, it'd be like I painting the uh, the Golden Gate Bridge. You finish at one end, you've got to start at the other again. <laughs> Let's see the immigration anti-immigration people argue against that. Oh, oh I'm wow. sorry. Did you want the job of shaving you, Robin Williams? Do you want to mow Robin Williams on a <laughs> weekly basis? <laughs> yeah. Um, what are you doing? I'm stripping his ears. I, I can see, you know, because I get like, I, I'm very slow about mowing my lawn because I'm lazy. But uh, about every couple of weeks, somebody will come to the door and try and explain to me in Spanish they want to mow my lawn. And uh, I'm always like, no, I'm going to get around to it. I'm going to get around to it. But I have this image in my head of Robin Williams at home. And one of these <laughs> guys like, comes to the door. He's no, like, but you can do my knees. Yes, come in. <laughs> Let me get the body chainsaw. Wow. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Richard, for joining me once again. Oh, my pleasure as always. Uh, and uh, we will be back next week with another Digital Noise. Make sure to check out that giveaway. Like I said, this is a good one. You don't want to miss that one. And until then, uh, Brian say something like, no release is too big, no release is too Too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we review them all. I don't want to know about Brian's releases. Don't talk about Brian's releases. Ew! He's very sensitive about that. Ew!